would you take out with me your copy of the Word of God? And we're going to open to the book of Luke, which is the third book in the New Covenant, in the uh, New Testament. And we're going to be opening to chapter 19. If you don't have a copy of the Word, you can look on your phone or off your neighbor. Luke chapter 19. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was, of, he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, Therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But the citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, You and you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you do not deposit, and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Thank you, Janelle. Well, this morning we continue our sermon series in the Gospel of Luke, and as we do, want to begin by sharing with you um, an assignment uh, that both of my older children um, were given uh, during their senior year English class. And in this assignment, um, each student was given a philosophical question. 
that they had to answer and give like a 10-minute presentation to the class and then to be able to take some questions um, and dialogue with the class in regards to the question and their answer to uh, this question. And so each student was given one of these questions. And so I don't have, a, have time to go through every question um, that was possible uh, that students were given. But here's, here's a sampling of the questions, of some of the questions that, of, that students were given that they um, had to answer. And so here's a few of them. How is happiness determined? What do you believe in? Are our lives determined or do we have free will, or is it a combination? What does a meaningful life look like? Do you believe the universe is essentially random? If so, how does that affect your decision making? How can we determine what is good and what is evil? What is a life well lived? So then that's just a sampling. There's like 40 other questions. That's kind of a sampling of, of the questions that they were given. And as soon as I was going through some of those questions, some of you were thinking, I'm sure glad I'm not in that class, right? <laughs> yes, you, you, you're really glad you're, you're not. But, but, but here's the kicker in all this, right? Remember, my, my, my kids are in, in public school. And so you can imagine some of the responses and some of the answers uh, that were given to a lot of these questions. The same time, though, I love, as a parent, especially as a, as a pastor, um, I love these questions. I'm glad that they were asked these questions. It was so good with each of them to kind of sit around the living room and just talk out loud, just kind of process through the specific question and that they were given, and to be able to talk through maybe some different ways that they could answer that question and what that might look like and, and how they could, what their presentation would look like and answer that, the question that they were given. And, and, and as we did that, for both of our kids, every single time, so we're processing through, just here's some different ways you could answer it and think about it and different angles you could take in answering those questions. Every single time, the answer, no matter what question each of our kids were given, the answer always ultimately always got back to Jesus. Always, always got back to Jesus. That no matter what the philosophical question was, that Jesus was the ultimate answer to every single one of these philosophical questions. In other words, what I mean by that is that, is that if you believe that 2,000 years ago, God took on human flesh and came to live on this earth, and if you believe that he performed all these supernatural miracles, and if you believe that he substituted himself on a cross, in the place of sinners. And if you believe that he, three days later, he rose back to life again. And if you believe, then days after that, it, he ascended back to heaven. And if you believe that one day then, he's going to return back to this earth, where he's going to judge and rule and reign and usher in his perfect kingdom forever. Like if you believe all of those truths... If that's your understanding of like the world that you were born into, if that's a, your understanding in regards to the, the world in which we live, then that's going to affect like your answer to the question, what's a meaningful life? Or, or that's going to affect, if, if you really believe all of that about Jesus, that, that's going to affect your answer to the question of 
How is happiness determined? Where does good and, and evil come from? Why are we here? What is the meaning of life? If you believe all of that about Jesus, then how can that not impact and shape and inform the answer that you give to all of these good, great big philosophical questions that people are wrestling with even today? That if you really believe all of this about Jesus, that it's going to radically shape, it's going to radically inform and impact everything about your view of the world and your understanding of the world and the purpose of the world and how you are to live in the world in which we live. And the reason I mention all of that is because that's what we're going to see within our two passages here this morning. That within our two passages this morning, what we're going to see is this. We're going to see why Jesus came, why Jesus is coming back, and why any of that matters for our lives today. In other words, we're going to see why Jesus came the first time, why Jesus came the second time, and we're going to see how the reality of his two comings then should radically alter, shape, inform, impact our view of the world and, and how we live in the world and why any of that matters for our lives today. And so let's, let's begin by looking at this first question or this first question in regards to why Jesus came. And we see this specifically within this first passage here, this well-known passage of Zacchaeus. And what we're going to see here is, is this, when it comes to the question of why Jesus came. What we're going to see is, you can see it on your, your hand out there, that first bullet point there, is that Jesus came the first time to seek and to save the lost. So what we're going to see, look at verse 1 with me there in chapter 19. Luke writes this, he entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. So then as we've talked about before, and as many of you know, tax collectors in Jesus' day, they were despised. They were some of the most despised and hated people in the land and on the face of the planet. And the reason for that is, there's a lot, lot of reasons for that, but one of the reasons for that is because they would, they would overvalue people's goods as they would pass through their, their tax booth or their, their toll booth there. They would overvalue people's goods and, and therefore tax them some exorbitant amount of tax. And then they would take the, the amount that they charged them that was over kind of the baseline amount and they would pocket, the, the, they would pocket that, the difference for themselves. And as a result of that then, what, how did the people view them? They, they viewed tax collectors as thieves, as, as robbers, as those who were stealing their money in order to make a profit and get rich off of them, because that's exactly what they were doing. But not only that, they were viewed as traitors, because the Jewish people were being oppressed and ruled by the Roman government, and so if a fellow Jew was serving as a tax collector, collecting taxes for the Roman government, then that tax collector was viewed as a traitor. And so then here you have Zacchaeus, viewed as, and this is not an overstatement, one of the most despised, worst sinners, one of the most hated people, social outcast, social outsider in the land. Look what happens next then 
in verse 3. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature, so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. So I know a lot of us, especially if we grew up in like Sunday school, vacation Bible school, church, we know the song about Zacchaeus, right? And we're going to sing that. No, I'm joking. We're not singing that. I'm not singing that. But you sing that song, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he and all that. And it sounds like this cute and cuddly little guy, right? And nothing could be further than the truth. He was a no good, rotten, filthy sinner that everybody hated and despised. He was a traitor. He was a tax collector. He was a thief. He was one of the worst of the worst in the land. He wasn't just this cute, little, cuddly, wee little man that we like to sing about. But look what happens here. Zacchaeus, he's small. He can't see. He wants to see Jesus for some reason. Crowds are big. He's too short, so he can't see him. He runs to a sycamore tree, climbs up a sycamore tree in order to get a glimpse of Jesus. Look at verse 5 then, what happens next. And when Jesus came to the place... He looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So in Jesus' day, being a guest of someone at their house or staying at someone's house was like a really, really, really big stinking deal. And the reason it was a big deal is because being the guest of someone was an act of fellowship. It was an act of, it it symbolized their acceptance of you, their embracing you. Of, of you, their, their identification with you. So put that together, right? Here we have the promised Messiah King. We've seen that through the first 18 chapters in Luke, right? The promised Messiah King. The Old Testament promise would come. Like the Holy One, the, the righteous one, the one who was sent from God himself to come and usher in God's kingdom. And you have this holy, righteous, promised Messiah King walking up to Zacchaeus and saying that he must stay at Zacchaeus' house. That he must stay at one of the worst sinners, the most despised, wicked sinners. He must stay at the house of a thief and a traitor. And he must stay at his house today. And that word must there, you might want to underline that or circle that there in verse 5. Like that, that word there isn't an exaggeration. That word must there isn't there by accident. Instead, like Jesus literally meant that. He, he literally means, I must stay at your house. I have to stay at your house. I cannot not stay at your house. I've got to do this. Which then begs the question, why? Like, why does Jesus, why must Jesus, why does Jesus have to, why can he not, not stay at his his house? Why, Why must he do this? Well, the answer to that question is found in the very last verse there within our passage, there in verse 10. Look there real quick. Here's why Jesus must stay at the house of this despised thief. For the Son of Man, talking about Jesus here, came to seek and to save the lost. So put all that together, right? That's why Jesus must stay at Zacchaeus' house. 
he has to stay at the house of a despised robber because Jesus has come to seek and to save what? The lost. Putting all that together, right? Zacchaeus is lost. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And therefore, Jesus must stay at the house of this man who's, who's lost. Some of you, you might be here and you're like, lost. Like, what, what do you mean he's lost? Like, he, he was headed this way and instead he went this way? Like, what, what do you mean? I mean, I've, I've been lost driving around looking for a location. I couldn't find it. I was, I was lost. But what's, what's Jesus mean here this man was lost? What he means when he says that this man is lost is that he means that he's, he's wandered from God that he's living in, in rebellion against God. He's living in rebellion to the commands that God has given to him, God's intentions for his life. And instead, he's made himself to be God. He's made himself to be the king of his life. And he's doing whatever he wants to do. And he's not living under the lordship of God him, himself. And Jesus is saying, huh, that's the exact person that I, that I came here for, that I came to seek and to save, that I, ca I came to seek and pursue rebels, sinners, thieves, robbers, those who have turned their nose against God, who've opposed God, and who've gone their own, their own way. That Jesus is saying he's come to seek and pursue after people just like that. And the reason he's come to do that is he's come to seek after them. Why? So, so that he could save them. Which then begs the question, what, what do they need to be saved from? If the lost have, have wandered from God, they've, they've rebelled against God and gone their own way against God's commands, then, then what, do, what do the lost need to be saved from? Well, we've seen this all throughout Luke. They need to be saved from the judgment of God. They need to be saved from the wrath of God. In other words, because of their sin and rebellion against God, they're living under the wrath of God. They're living under the judgment of God. And Jesus is saying, this is why he came. He came to seek, he came to pursue after the lost, and he came to save them. And the way that he came to save them is that he was going to walk 18 more miles to Jerusalem, and he was going to hang on a cross. And in hanging on the cross, he was substituting himself in the place of the lost, so that he then could endure and receive the judgment of God and the wrath of God in their place as their substitute. That's then how he was going to rescue and to save the lost from the judgment that they deserve for their sins. What that means then this morning is this. If you're here this morning and you fall into this category of, of lost, if you're here this morning you fall in this category the same category that Zacchaeus is in. That, that you have wandered from God. You have rebelled against the commands of God. That you have thumbed your nose at, at God and said, I'm, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to live however I want to. And I'm going to be the God and the king of, of my life. If that describes you this morning, then, then listen to this. Jesus was born. Jesus came to seek and to pursue after people just like you. 
He, he didn't come for the proud, the self-righteous, who, who don't think they need him, who don't recognize their need for him. He came for the lost. He came for those who've wandered, those who've rebelled, those who've, who've intentionally sinned and, and revolted against the king of the universe. He's, he's come for people just like that, for the lost who, who, know, their need, who know their need to be saved. He's, he's come to rescue the lost. So if that's you this morning, then how do you respond? Like, what do, what do, you, what do you respond? How, how do you respond? Well, the answer to that question we see is in Zacchaeus's response. That Zacchaeus's response within the rest of this story is an example for how lost people are to respond to Jesus as Jesus is seeking to save the lost. And the, the response here is, is twofold. You can see the first response on your handout there. It's to receive Jesus joyfully. To receive Jesus joyfully. This is how Zacchaeus responds, responds there in verse 6. Look there with me. It says, so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. What that's a reference to within context there is that he received him into his home. Which again, is a, would have been a big deal. It, it symbolized something big going on. That Zacchaeus receiving Jesus joyfully into his home is a picture of Zacchaeus accepting Jesus, Zacchaeus identifying with Jesus, Zacchaeus embracing Jesus. In other words, this word isn't used specifically there in verse 6, but this is a picture of Zacchaeus' faith in Jesus. It's a picture of Jesus, of Zacchaeus embracing, identifying, accepting the truth of who Jesus is. This is the promised Messiah King. And also in, in accepting and embracing the truth of what Jesus has come to do. Which we'll see here in just a minute. What that means then is this. If you're here this morning, if you can identify with Zacchaeus here this morning, if you're in this category of loss this morning, if you've wandered from God, rebelled against God this morning, then you may wonder, what, how in the world do I respond? What do I do? Well, the first response is receive Jesus joyfully. Embrace the fact, believe, accept, trust the fact that he is the promised Messiah King and identify yourself as a disciple and a follower of his. Secondly, then, is to repent immediately. To repent immediately. This is what we see next in verse 7. Look there with me in verse 7. It says, and when they saw it, talking about the crowds there, they all grumbled that he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And then look what Zacchaeus did in verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Whereas verse 6 was a picture of Zacchaeus' faith in Jesus, verse 8 here is a picture of Zacchaeus's repentance. It's a picture of repentance. It's a word that a lot of people don't use in their everyday lingo or their everyday conversation at the workplace or in their neighborhood and things of that nature. But this word repent, it's a biblical word. It's a good word. It's a word that needs to be used. The word repent means to change, to change direction. It means to, to turn around. And that's exactly what you see Zacchaeus doing here, right? 
What was he doing before this? He was robbing people. He was cheating people. He was ripping people off. And then he meets Jesus. He receives Jesus joyfully. Jesus came to seek and to save him. And as a result then, what happened to Zacchaeus' life? He doesn't cheat anybody anymore. He doesn't rob anybody anymore. He doesn't rip people off anybody anymore. Instead, he's filled with what? Generosity. He's filled with generosity. He says he gives half of his goods to the poor. Not only that, he makes restitution for the wrongs that he's done. He, he doesn't just cry and, and feel sorry and grieve over the wrongs that he's done and the people that he's cheated and how he's ripped them off. Instead, he actually goes back and does something about it and makes all the wrongs that he's committed, he makes them right. He doesn't just shrug his shoulders and say, too bad. Repentance means that you make restitution as best as you can, if you can, for the wrongs that you've committed against others. So there's this change of direction, right? There's this turning around that takes place in Zacchaeus' life. And this is a sign then of, of true biblical conversion. This is a sign of true biblical saving faith, that when a person receives, accepts, embraces, places their faith in Jesus to rescue them, their life is transformed. God works a supernatural miracle in their heart, and there's a change of direction. There's a turning around that occurs, particularly as it relates to your sin and your sin patterns and lifestyle, sin lifestyle. You don't just continue in those and just tack Jesus along with that. Instead, if you embrace Jesus and encounter Jesus, there's a transformation that occurs in your life, and there's a change of direction and a turning around that occurs in your life. So how you once used to live, you no longer live like that anymore. Zacchaeus gave away half his goods, he made restitution, and now he's generous, and he's given half of his stuff away, and, and he's doing it. He's, there's a change that's occurred. And so as you think about in your life, Two things. Number one is that if you profess yourself to be a Christian this morning, have you seen this change of direction? Have you seen this turning around that's happened in your life? If not, then I would, I would say this. You can profess to be a Christian all you want, but if there's, if there's never been this repentance, this turn, this change, like we've seen in Zacchaeus' life, then the reality is you're really not a Christian. Because not only do Christians place their faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, there's also this evidence of repentance that's occurred in their life as well. Secondly, if you're here this morning and you're lost and you're, you're wandering from the Lord and you're rebelling against his commands in these different ways as we've talked about, then, then receive him joyfully this morning and turn and repent and change direction as it relates to your sin. Not only accept Jesus as your Savior, but also submit to him as the Lord of your life. So that is, oh, and when you do that, I almost got ahead of myself. Look at verse 9 then. Look what happens to Zacchaeus. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That that is what happens to those who receive Jesus joyfully and to those who repent from their sins is that they're saved. They're rescued from the judgment that they deserve for their sins 
and salvation comes to their house. So that's the first reason here why Jesus came. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. This then leads to the second question. Why then is Jesus coming back again? Here's the answer we're going to see in this next parable, in this next passage. See it on your hand out there. Jesus is coming back again to judge. So he came the first time to seek and to save the lost. He's going to come back again to judge. This is what we see in this very next passage in this parable of the ten menace. Look at verse 11 here in the parable that Jesus gives, starting in verse 11. Luke writes this, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So then this is important. Here's the backdrop of this parable that Jesus is about to give. The disciples and Jesus are still in Jericho. They're making their way to Jerusalem, which is about an 18 miles away, so about a six-hour walk. And the expectation of the disciples is that once they entered into Jerusalem is that Jesus was going to once and for all consummate the kingdom and fully and finally establish his kingdom. He was going to overthrow the Romans. He was going to be coronated and and crowned as king. And he was going to usher in this, this great kingdom of peace and righteousness and justice that was going to last forever. So that was the expectation of the disciples. The only problem is that's not what was going to happen. Instead, what was going to happen is that Jesus was going to enter into Jerusalem. He was going to be rejected. He was going to suffer and he was going to be crucified on a cross. And so the disciples are thinking glory, triumph, kingship, reign when they get to Jerusalem. And Jesus is thinking rejection, suffering, blood, dying. Two totally different, two totally different things. Instead of, as we've seen throughout the Gospel of Luke, Jesus isn't going to consummate his kingdom in his first uh, coming. Instead, Jesus is going to consummate his kingdom in his second coming. Instead, Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to die. Three days later, he's going to rise again. And then he's going to send back to heaven. And then one day, in the still now future, Jesus is going to return back to this earth where he's going to fully and finally establish his kingdom and consummate his kingdom. The disciples just had their timetable a little off by, I don't know, at least 2,000 years, maybe, maybe longer. We're not for sure. And so what Jesus does for his disciples then is they have this wrong expectation of what's going to happen in Jerusalem. And so what Jesus does for his disciples is he gives them a parable, which he always does because that's his answer to everybody's problem. Hey, let me just give you a parable. And so he gives them, he gives them a parable. And the purpose of this parable is this. He gives them this parable so that they will know how to live as they wait for Jesus's, the consummation of Jesus' kingdom. He tells them this parable because they think they're going to get to Jerusalem and the kingdom is going to be fully and finally established. Instead, they're going to have to wait a long time until this kingdom is fully and finally established when Jesus returns. And so in the meantime, he tells them this parable so that they will know how to live as they wait for this final kingdom to come. And it's in this way then, right, that this parable is applicable to us as well, just as it was for the disciples. Why? Because Jesus hasn't returned to finally and fully consummate his kingdom. 
And so this parable is applicable for us to instruct us on how we are to live as we wait for Jesus to return and fully and finally consummate his, his kingdom. And so this is, this is the parable that Jesus gives that instructs us how to live as we wait for his return and the consummation of the kingdom. Look at verse 12. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. What's being, this is a little confusing here, but what Jesus is saying, and this nobleman here, is a picture of a nobleman who goes to a faraway country to be crowned as king by like the emperor and then to return back to his region or to his country where then he will be, where he will then establish the kingdom. So he's going off to a far country to be crowned as king and then he's going to come and return and establish his kingdom. That's the picture that we have here. Look what happens then in verse 13. This is what the nobleman does before he leaves to be for the faraway country. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. A mina here, and some of you can see this in your footnotes in the Bible, is the equivalent of like three months or, or four months worth of wages. And so as this nobleman, he's about to go away to this far country, and before he leaves, he calls his ten servants to him. He gives each of them a mina, three, four months worth of wages, and he wants them to put that mina to work. And he wants them to, to engage in business with the mina that he's given them and that, so that they will make a profit so that when he returns, there, there, will, be, there will be a profit that they made um, while he was away. In verse 14 then, we see that not everyone is a big fan of this nobleman going out to this far country and becoming their king. And so look what they do there in verse 14. It says, but his citizens hated him. Talk about the nobleman. And so they sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. So the citizens travel to this faraway country and they beg with the emperor, whoever it's going to be, that's going to crown this man as king. And they beg him, don't let this man reign and rule over us. Don't let him be the king. And so they beg him for that to, to happen. Unfortunately, for the citizens, they don't get their wish. Instead, the nobleman goes away. He's crowned as king. And then look what happens there in verse 15 when he returns. When he returned, having received the kingdom, so he established the kingdom when he returned, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your men has made 10 minutes more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. Think about that. He just gave them one, three months worth of wages and their faithfulness in those three months worth of wages, he gives, them, he gives this one servant 10 cities to rule over. That's somewhat disproportionate. It's like I'm giving you a few thousand dollars, you do a good job, in return I'm going to let you rule over 10 cities. Anyway. A little disproportionate. Verse 18, And the second came, saying, Lord, your men has made five minutes. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. 
So this nobleman, he returns, he calls each of his servants to him so he can evaluate and determine how faithful and obedient each of these servants were with, with, the, with the money that he gave to them while he was away. And so as we can see, the first two servants, they were faithful, they were obedient, they did exactly what their master told them to do. They put his money to work. As a result then, the master rewarded them. He said, you were faithful in this little responsibility I gave you? Well, I'm going to give you greater responsibility now. Here's ten cities. Here's five cities that you're responsible for to oversee and to rule over. In verse 20, though, you have a third servant that comes to share about what he did with the money that the master had entrusted to him. And look what he says there in verse 20. He says, Lord, here's your minna, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. So we have a, something different with this third servant, right? The first two servants, faithful, obedient. Master entrusted them money. They put his money to work. They were responsible with, with the task that they'd given him, and they made a profit. But not with this third servant, though. Instead, what he did? He hid it. He hid it. And the reason he hid it is because he said that his master was harsh and that his master would have stolen his money from him that he would have made. That his master would have taken advantage of him. And so he says he was afraid of his master, so he just... He just hid his money. Look then at how the master responds to him there in verse 22. He says, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? In other words, do you see what's going on here? The master is calling the servant's bluff. He, he's saying, you're full of it. You're just making up excuses. You're saying, I'm harsh. You're saying, I'm severe. You're saying, you're afraid of me. You're just blaming me for your unfaithfulness. You're blaming me for your, for your disobedience. Because the reality is, within this story, what do we know about the master? He's far from harsh. He's far from being severe. He's far from being unjust. He looks, he's very generous, very generous to his, to his servants. And so basically what he's doing here, he's calling his bluff, he's, he's turning his servants' words around on him. And he's basically saying this, if you really believed what you said about me, if you really believed that I was really harsh like you said I was, if you, if you really believed that, then the last thing on earth you would have done is hide the money. Because if you really believe that, and if I really was harsh, then yeah, that's the last thing you would have done. Instead, if you really believed I was harsh, then you would at least put the money in the bank so that it could draw a little bit of interest, so that when I return, you would have had at least a little something to show for it. But you didn't even do that. And the reason you really didn't do that is because you really don't think I'm harsh. 
you really don't think I'm severe. You're really not afraid of me like you're saying I am. You're just justifying and rationalizing and making excuses for your unfaithfulness, your laziness, your neglect, and your disobedience. Look then at verse 24, what the master decides to do to this third servant. And he said to those who stood by, take the minna from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. That's kind of funny there. Look at verse 26. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So then unlike those two other servants, the third servant, he doesn't see a reward of any kind. In fact, he, he doesn't receive anything. In fact, what he has is completely taken away from him. Look then at what happens to the citizens who opposed them, opposed the nobleman earlier within this parable and who didn't want him to reign as king over them. Verse 27, but as for these enemies of mine, meaning those citizens who opposed him, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So then remember the purpose of this parable, right? Jesus is telling this parable so that we will know how to live as we wait for him to return, to come back and finally and fully establish and consummate his kingdom here on earth. That Jesus is like the nobleman here, right? He's in a faraway country right now, heaven. But he is returning one day where he's going to establish his kingdom. And when he returns, then he's going to return to judge us and hold us accountable for how faithful and obedient we've been with all the different responsibilities that he has entrusted to us while he has been away. The reality of that then has massive, huge implications on our lives and how we live today as we wait for Jesus to return and establish his kingdom. And there's two implications I want to touch on real quick and then we'll be done. The first implication is this. It's that those who reject Jesus' kingship will be condemned when he returns. This is exactly what happened. Remember the citizens who didn't want the nobleman to be their king. They opposed him. They did not want him to reign and rule as king over their lives in their land. And so when the king returned, when the nobleman returned, what did he do to these citizens who opposed his reign and rule and kingship? He had them all slaughtered. He had every single one of them killed every single one of them who resisted and opposed his rule and reign as king over their lives over their land when he returned he slaughtered them all and the same thing's going to happen when jesus returns that every single person if you're here this morning you and every single person who resists and opposes Jesus as king, his reign and rule as king and his kingdom over your life. You you oppose that, you resist that, you say no to that. When Jesus returns, he'll condemn you in judgment. That's what's going to happen when he returns. Secondly then, those who have been faithful and obedient with the responsibilities they've been entrusted with by Jesus will be rewarded with greater responsibility when he returns. 
that raises two questions. The two main questions that people ask when they come to this parable. The first question is this. Tell me about this third servant. Like, does this third servant here represent a genuine, true Christian? Is this third servant representative of a Christian? Or is this third servant representative of a non-Christian? There's a lot, I mean, we could preach a sermon just on that. And you're like, don't do that. And don't worry, I'm not. But, but this, I believe, and I would say most scholars would believe that this third servant does not represent a true, genuine Christian. This third servant is representative of an unbeliever, of, of somebody who's not a Christian. And, I, and, I, and that's where I would lean, and I'll, I'll hold that for, for a number of different reasons that I don't have time to expound on every single one of them this morning. But number one would be his master calls him wicked. Never in the Bible do you see a Christian being called wicked, just, just unchristian. Number two, he's faithful and disobedient, which isn't a sign of a Christian. Number three, he doesn't receive any type of reward, which isn't true of a Christian. In Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 25, of a similar type of parable, that servant was, was, was condemned in judgment when Jesus returned. And so then for those reasons, and, and there's, there's more, but I, I would say this third servant here does not represent a true, genuine Christian. The second question then is often asked here is this. What exactly are the faithful, those who are faithful with the smaller responsibilities that Jesus has given to us here on earth, what exactly is the reward that we're going to receive? What, 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 what is that? For these two servants within the parable, they were rewarded with cities. And so do I get a city? Do you get a city? Like, what's the, what's the, what are we going to be rewarded with? What's this greater responsibility that we're going to be rewarded with when Jesus returns to usher in and finally establish his, his kingdom. Well, Jesus doesn't explicitly, explicitly say what that reward for us and what that greater responsibility for us is going to be when he returns. But I think if we understand this parable within the context of Scripture as a whole, I think we can make a pretty good, have a pretty good understanding of what this reward is and what this greater responsibility is that we're going to receive as those who were faithful and obedient in the smaller things and the smaller responsibilities here on this, here on this earth. And the responsibility that we're going to receive and the reward we're going to see when Jesus returns, I believe, is very similar to the rewards that these two servants received within this parable. That they, they receive cities, that they're going to rule and reign and, and, and have responsibility over in the nobleman's kingdom. And I think same thing's going to happen for, for us. That, that when Jesus returns, we're going to be given a similar sort of responsibility to reign and rule over God's kingdom with Jesus when he returns. That that's the, that's the responsibility. That, 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 that the responsibility we have now are, is the responsibility of, of being a, 
being, being faithful with the money that God has entrusted to us, being faithful as a, as, a, as a Christian husband, being faithful as a Christian single, being faithful with the job that God has given you, being faithful with your time, being faithful with the gospel, being faithful with ministry opportunities given you. And so we're, we're faithful in these smaller things that, that God has entrusted to us. And therefore, as we're faithful and obedient in these lesser responsibilities that God has entrusted to us, then we reveal that we're, we're true servants of the King. We reveal and give evidence that we're true, genuine Christians. And therefore, as Jesus returns then, then the greater responsibility that we've been given as we've lived out our lesser responsibilities of faithfulness, obedience in these lesser ways, roles, and responsibilities here on this earth, the greater responsibility then, then that we're going to be given is the responsibility of reigning and ruling with Jesus forever in his, in his kingdom. And so then think about this, right, real quick, and we'll be done, what this, what this means for our lives today. And think about specifically for you, right, of all the different responsibilities that, that, that God has entrusted to you. Think about that, that you're a steward of. That God's entrusted to you today. Your, your job, your money, your spouse, your kids, your singleness, your, your friends, your relationships, your ministry opportunities, your time, your, your weekends, your education, your health, your, your faithfulness, obedience to, to God's command in His Word, God's commands in, in His Word, your, your interactions with people who don't know Jesus, your sufferings, your trials that you're walking through, the abilities and spiritual gifts that God has given to you, the, the gospel itself, this church and the responsibilities you have as a member of this church toward one another and and oh, keep going but these are these are all responsibilities that you're a steward of that I'm a steward of that God has entrusted these responsibilities these different roles to us and this parable is teaching us that one day Jesus is going to return back and we're going to give an account for for how for whether or not we were faithful for whether or not we were obedient for what we did with these different responsibilities that God has entrusted to us. And so then think about some of those just in your life this morning, what some of those most kind of more major responsibilities might be that God has entrusted you with, that you're going to be held accountable for. And ask some of these questions, are there, are there areas or responsibilities that you've been negligent in, that, that you've been negligent in, that, that you've neglected that you've tried to hide or that you've tried to hide from, that you've avoided? Are there responsibilities God has entrusted to you that you've been lazy in? Just kind of just ambivalent, lazy, going through the motions in. Are there responsibilities you've been entrusted with by God that you've used to serve your unselfish pursuits and desires? Do, do you, when you think about these responsibilities, do you see these responsibilities as, as stewardship? Is responsibilities you've been entrusted with to put them to use for the glory of God and the good of others and the health of the church and that you're going to be ultimately held responsible for and have to give an account for. Or in other words, if Jesus returned today, what would he say? How, how would he respond if you evaluated your faithfulness and obedience to these different areas 
of responsibility he's entrusted you with. When it comes to this reward, I, I don't know if like of reigning and ruling, the responsibility of reigning and ruling in Jesus' kingdom when he comes. I, I don't know if like Kevin's going to get 20 cities and I'm going to get three. You know, or if people are going to get different measures of responsibility within the kingdom. Or if that's just kind of the, was the point, you know, just kind of part of the story of the parable. Or if we're all going to get equal responsibility. I don't, I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. But I do know this. One of the major truths that this parable is teaching us is that he who is faithful with very little will also be given greater responsibility to exercise their faithfulness over. What that means then is this life is kind of like a dress rehearsal. This life in many ways is, is kind of like practice for a greater stewardship that is to come. In this life, he's entrusted us with money, with relationships, with ministry opportunities, with other responsibilities that we're going to be held responsible for. But when he returns, he's going to give us a kingdom where we're going to reign and rule with him forever. And so then in light of that greater responsibility that, that we have that, that's coming when Jesus returns, let's work on being faithful stewards now in these smaller responsibilities and these smaller areas of life that he's entrusted to us. Let's be faithful stewards now in light of the greater responsibility and the greater stewardship that is to come. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your goodness toward us and thank you for your word and how you use it in our lives to remind us of why you came and to remind us of why you're coming again. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.